Hi, I'm Larry Gifford. I have Parkinson's disease. This is a special interview episode of the pod. Just you and me this week, as Beck will be back next episode. Just in time for Parkinson's Awareness Month, a biomarker breakthrough. Before we dive into conversation with Debbie Brooks, CEO and co-founder of the Michael J. Fox Foundation for Parkinson's Research, I want to go through some terminology that I know has been tripping up some folks. You'll hear Debbie refer to these terms, and you'll certainly come across them if you're reading up on the biomarker. There are 12 of them. Let's begin with the most obvious. Hey Larry, what's a biomarker? A biomarker is a method to identify and track Parkinson's disease, in this case, in a fair and impartial way, objectively. This method allows us to see what's happening inside a person's body while they're still alive. In most people with Parkinson's, we can detect a problem with a certain protein called alpha-synuclein, which folds incorrectly. Subtypes. Sometimes people can have the same disease, but it may not look the same. Doctors use these subtypes to describe these different variations of the illness, and it helps them choose the best treatment plan. A catalyzing finding. This typically refers to a discovery or breakthrough that speeds up progress in a particular field or area of study. CSF. Cerebrospinal fluid. It's clear liquid that surrounds the brain and spinal cord. It acts like a cushion, provides nutrients, and supports the structures. CSF is also uh, there to help remove waste from the brain and spinal cord. Longitudinal collections. Yes, we'll have longitudinal collections of spinal fluid, in this case referring to the repeated sampling of the CSF over time from the same individual. Could be days, could be weeks, could be years. The collection of CFS can be done through a lumbar puncture, spinal tap, lumbar puncture, which involves inserting a needle between two vertebrae in the lower back and drawing out a small amount of liquid. Manifest symptoms refers to the visible or noticeable sign of a particular condition or disease that can be observed or experienced by the person affected or by others. An assay is a laboratory technique used to measure or detect the presence or concentration of a particular substance or biomolecule in a sample. You ever hear of the canary in the coal mine? An early example of the biological assay is the use of canaries by miners to detect toxic gases in coal mines. Canaries are very sensitive to toxic gases that can build up in mines, and it would show signs of distress or illness before the gases reached levels that could harm the miners. This allowed the miners to detect the presence of toxic gases and take appropriate safety measures. Asynuclein Seed Amplification Assay, SAA. The asynuclein seed amplification assay is a laboratory test used to study the protein alpha-synuclein, which is associated with Parkinson's disease. The test works by amplifying or making more of the asynuclein protein that is present in a sample. Decades of failed models. This is what we're calling uh, research with rodents, non-human primates like macaws, and non-mammal species like small organisms like zebrafish. And the mad cow assay, uh, you'll hear Debbie refer to mad cow disease. This is a test that helps to find out if cows have mad cow disease. Before this test existed, it was hard to tell if cows had the disease until they died, and then it took a really long time to check. But with this new test, we can check cows while they're still alive, and it only takes a little bit of their blood or saliva. That laid the groundwork for the asynuclein assay, which is the first time we're going to be looking at and measuring alpha-synuclein in a living person. All right. I think we're now caught up, and let's get to the interview. Without further ado, let's say hello to Debbie Brooks, 
CEO and co-founder of the Michael J. Fox Foundation. Hey, Larry, how are you? Debbie, the banner headline on the homepage of the Michael J. Fox Foundation's website reads, Breaking News, Parkinson's Disease Biomarker Found. It sounds so exciting, but for those who've not been tracking the search for a Parkinson's biomarker, can you simply explain some of the key findings of this study? I'm just going to say up front, this is the most important finding we've had to date in what has been almost a two-decade pursuit of something that helps us objectively identify and measure the course of Parkinson's disease. And so what was published last week was our ability now to detect in living people the pathology of alpha-synuclein protein that misfolds in Parkinson's disease. And so this is a significant and um, very catalyzing finding. Can you take us sort of in behind the curtain when you shared the news with Michael? What was his reaction? Yeah, well, so we, you know, this news has been building. Um, to be fair, the data, which was validated in our um, Parkinson's Progression Marker Initiative Study, or PPMI, um, it's, it's that we've been sending samples and, and awaiting sample results over the course of a full year. And as the scale was significant enough we're, and, and was holding in terms of its great insights, it became pretty clear. And that's when the authors started working on a paper, et cetera. Um, I knew that we were a couple of weeks away from being able to present this data at an upcoming Fox Foundation board meeting. And I really just wanted to make sure that Michael got a chance to hear it first. So um, he was on a family vacation in California and I, I flew out to visit with him. And um, you know, I set up some time. I, Todd Scherer, the chief mission officer at the Fox Foundation and a, the lead um, scientist for our team, he was joining us by Zoom. And so I, I kind of sat down with Michael and I said, Todd's going to be with us in a minute. Um, I just need you to know he's going to tell you all the science. Um, and, and Todd's a great science communicator. So it, was gonna, it wasn't that it would be impenetrable. But I said, but you just need to know this is a breakthrough. And he just looked at me and then I hit like hit go on the Zoom and um, Todd explained it all and was and Michael was nodding. He totally got it. Of course, we've been invested in biomarkers to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars over the last um, 15 to 18 years. And he knew exactly what the implications were. And he just he was choked up. Um, he was so proud and excited and felt like this is what we're here for. I mean, he just, he, he immediately appreciated the full potential of this finding. And, but the, 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 the um, cutest part was he picked up this, the computer screen, picked up his laptop and brought it forward and leaned over and kissed Todd on the screen. <laughs> and, and it was just, I, I mean, he just was really thrilled and has been giddy about the information ever since and as we should be this is this is this is big stuff so when the ppmi study began 13 years ago what was the intention of the study going into it ppmi the idea was to study everything we could imagine collect samples bank them and see if the data in ppmi by studying people and controls um, could tell us something about give us the insights but broadly, we made all the data available to researchers worldwide. And they, I mean, it's been downloaded something like 15 million times over the last 13 years. And it also stood as a ready cohort for validating 
biomarkers that we could see traction in in small numbers. And so just in the last year, 1,100 samples, PPMI were all, um, we were able to use the, the spinal fluid samples that went one sample for everybody who uh, we were able to use for validation. And um, that enabled us to validate this in a significant population. And here we are. So uh, you mentioned spinal fluid. This is because of spinal taps. These 1,100 people had what? I like to call them lumbar punctures. <laughs> okay, lumbar punctures. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so they, but they had several of these over the years or just one or how, how does that work? Um, well, I, I actually, I'm a control in the PPMI study. So I know firsthand controls and people with Parkinson's. And also over the years, we've been adding people who we knew were at high risk for Parkinson's. So we have a, a variety of people. The original study was about 600 people. It's now up to almost 2000. So it's been a real expansion among other things you know, blood, urine, clinical exams, um, neuroimaging, you know, I mean, just we've been collecting as much as we can without, you know, um, overwhelming any study participants, but it does include serial collection, longitudinal collection of spinal fluid. So um, as a control, I've had fewer, but I think I've already had something like eight or nine, maybe 10 over the years. Yeah. And so this is all, it's not just the spinal fluid, which is extremely valuable it's that it is attached to extremely well-characterized individuals. So you know a lot, even though you don't know who they are individually, but the, the data package around all the samples are um, elaborate. And so um, not only in this finding can we detect this, uh, this bad alpha-synuclein um, and, and see that someone has Parkinson's, um, it actually shows up in people who have manifest symptoms of Parkinson's, but as I mentioned, there's a decent number of samples in PPMI that are from people who don't have manifest symptoms, but rather we know to be at higher risk for Parkinson's disease. So this is detecting um, the pathology of the disease before symptoms even start. Which is like awesome. Yeah. It's real. Well, this is no surprise, right? You know, we nobody really believes that the day you decide to pick up the phone and try to see a doctor that the day before is when you got Parkinson's disease. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and as you know, you know, once you have PD and if you learn a little bit more about its broader symptom package and things, you start to realize, Oh, wow. You know, I get diagnosed based on arrest tremor and rigidity, bradykinesia and, and, but, but there are a lot of other things that are commonly present. And those often the, some of the non-motor features are things that predate, the classic symptoms, kind of the diagnose, diagnosing symptoms by, by decades. And so the biology has long been believed to be underway for quite some time before symptoms present and send someone to a doctor. Um, and now we have a tool that, that, that validates that. So will lumbar puncturing become part of the regular Parkinson's, uh, you know, testing? Well, um, today it's already being used in research. So this, um, and some studies were getting um, spinal fluid without knowing what it might tell them, uh, but generally um, this assay, this tool will be, is available for research today. It technically is available for clinical use, but it has a lot more challenges on that front. Um, already this, you know, there's one company that can do this, but many others are, are trying to develop a, a, an assay 
And I think the field is well aware that um, a tool that relies on um, spinal fluid may have real limitations. Um, having done many of them myself, I, it's not a big deal, but you know, people, doctors and patients feel a little um, skittish about that. So we are already doing work. Work is underway to see if we can validate the same assay in other um, kind of more rational tissue symptoms like skin, blood, or even nasal swab. And um, so that's one big improvement just in this assay that's underway. And, and I think for this to be more commonly used and particularly to, to make it all the way to clinical care, it would, it, it would likely um, be better suited for an easy, more easily scare, um, scaled and affordable in one of these other tissue symptoms. Um, so for now, and then a second thing we're working to do is quantify, get some quantification readouts right now. It's a binary test. Yes or no. Oh. And so it would increase its value dramatically if it had, if there was some scale quantification in, in these assays. So what exactly is the acenucleon seed amplification assay? Well, so that is the tool. And what it's saying is that, that well, there's a, an approach. Okay. I'm not, a, I'm not a scientist. So sure. <laughs> this, this is how I understand it. There is a technique called a seeding amplification assay. And um, the idea, I believe, in a test tube is that you take um, spinal fluid, in this case, currently, and you, you um, take some, let's call it bad, um, protein of choice or, or of interest, in our case, synuclein, and you put some fluorescence in it, I think. And you put it in a sample, a test tube sample of, in this case, spinal fluid. And then the idea is if, um, if there is the presence of other bad synuclein, it'll find it and light it up. And so that's what the tool in practice, you know, kind of in lay terms, mostly accurate. <laughs> um, other people can say it better, but you get a sense. And the idea, th this was first um, developed, I think, in something like mad cow disease, which we know to be a prion type disease, which means uh, pathology can transfer um, uh, from entity to entity. And I think in this, in this sense, cell to cell, um, again, close enough for our purposes. Um, <laughs> I'm not the technical experts, but um, an enterprising PhD on the Fox Foundation um, staff now some time ago, many years ago, was tracking on this in other areas when that when that essay was developed in Alzheimer's. And she reached out to um, the uh, practitioner, the, the scientist who was working on this in Alzheimer's and asked and, and with a part of her discretionary funds, all our PhDs have some discretionary funds. She asked, you know, could I get you to do some work in this in alpha-synuclein? And many years were spent trying to establish that assay for alpha-synuclein. And then lo and behold, you know, once it started to get pretty fine and showed tremendously exciting signals, it needed to be validated. We, we funded the work to validate it in small cohorts and with continued encouraging data, um, we took it to PPMI. And the validation on a very large sample could be done quite quickly. But so far, one sample in each, one of our important next steps would be to um, be able to, in the same people, look at over uh, longitudinal samples. Um, this, this is, this is going to take a lot of resources. Th this finding is exciting, but there is a significant 
um, requirement for additional resources to be able to continue to make the most of these findings. So what kind of time frame are we looking before this begins to change the way patients are treated for Parkinson's disease or diagnosed? Well, um, I actually think because it's available in research settings right now, what I, it's not just to refine the assay. It's actually being, it's being applied immediately in clinical trials underway. So um, one of the immediate benefits is already happening, which is this. Um, so if you think to, if you um, recall in the Alzheimer's field, um, I guess maybe in the mid 2015s, something like that. There were two really big trials, I believe, that failed. And in retrospect, with better tools in hand, they realized that they were kind of doomed from the beginning. And that the challenge is something that with our tool, we can now avoid in Parkinson's. So in, in Alzheimer's, about 30% of the participants in these interventional studies that were underway, and in this case, the Alzheimer's field was trying to um, uh, um, target beta amyloid. In hindsight, they realized about a third of the people in the study didn't have any beta amyloid pathology. And so it was really never going to meet its endpoints. So just being able to understand that every person that goes into a trial that is targeting alpha-synuclein, which there are scores of them that are active right now, the recruitment criteria can now include validating that the person going into the study actually has the alpha-synuclein pathology present. Um, about, you know, they're about seven, uh, based on numbers so far, they're about 7% of people who have what we think is Parkinson's when we see people in the clinic. Um, they, and they've had it for a long time, they're responsive to medications, all sorts of things, but they do not have this pathology. We don't know what they do have, but we're, and that's an area, a big area of inquiry, but you want to make sure that you aren't accidentally or unintentionally putting them in a trial for synuclein pathology when they don't have the presence of synuclein pathology. So this is an immediate benefit. Yeah. So that's, that's also one of the headlines out of here is we're beginning to be able to see how we could begin to subtype. Yes, exactly. And, and the team says in the next three years, we should, and it may be faster, be able to have better, have the same assay in, in additional tissue systems. You know, the more peripheral the tissue, it may be that it's not quite as robust, but it could be a screening before you send everybody in to get CSF, for instance. Um, and, and ultimately, skin, blood, or swabs, that could be part of public health screening at a certain age. Yeah, you can imagine in your, in your 50s getting this is just understanding, do you have this pathology present? By the way, you could have the pathology present, and it could be decades before and maybe never that you get Parkinson's. But at least it's redefining when we know the disease to begin. Biology is disease, not symptoms. And so it's a really important observation. The team says, we, we think that that can happen within two years. And the quantification means you may be able to not only use this tool for inclusion exclusion criteria, but to develop endpoints for your interventional trials. So these are things that mean the current pipeline of active interventions could get a big boost of improved ability to be smarter, cheaper, faster, like in real time. 
So, but the same type of improvements in the tool are the things that will ultimately also lead us to seeing it more commonly in the care setting. Right now, um, there's not really scale to make this a clinical tool um, in our view, um, although it is available, someone could find it, but you need a doctor's prescription. There's no, no payers are paying for it. So it's out of pocket and it's a CSF um, marker. How do you see this changing our understanding of Parkinson's as a disease? Um, well, I, this is fascinating. And I think this is something that evolves over time. Um, other disease um, indications have gone through this transformation. Neuroscience and neurodegeneration is just kind of coming into this. But what I, I see is it does redefine, objectively redefine when disease begins. Our team will be working and publishing what we believe is the start of a new way to think about measuring Parkinson's that's really looking at a biologically based staging system of disease. And for instance, by the way, this is still in draft form, but for instance, if you think historically that we generally, we know better, but we kind of shorthand say, oh, Parkinson's starts when I was diagnosed. How long have you had Parkinson's? That's the question. And the question is the day the doctor told me. But we know that's not really true. The presence of symptoms is not stage zero. It might be stage two, stage three, right? Probably stage three, because we know people are at risk. We can start to see things happening before people are symptomatic. And so this biological staging, I think, is a pretty dramatic shift and, and means that um, interventions will be linked to objective biology rather than symptoms. Other fields kind of evolve that into um, tools that are, or, or, or scales that are called um, integrated staging systems, and it can look at a combination of biology and symptoms to help understand, because you may not have biology that's changing, you know, kind of in uh, across disease that you can measure yet. I mean, this is the first major tool, I think. DATSCAN is also an important tool. Um, there's no doubt that synuclein imaging, which we don't have, but we're getting close on, this will be an, all, an additional enhancing tool. So you can imagine a scaffolding where a lot of different biomarkers can tell you different things, objective markers can tell you different things at different stages of disease. And this is, you know, just ushers in an entirely new paradigm. And then is there any benefit uh, that you can see from this discovery for people who already are, you know, five, 10, 15 years into their Parkinson's uh, adventure? Well, um, based on what I hear folks saying, I mean, it, it wouldn't change anyone's treatment today. It might explain how people respond to treatments, but for the most part, this has the best chance today to change the drug trials that people are waiting for outputs on. And that since, you know, we've had 18 new drugs approved in the last eight years, I think, but they're all things that are, by the way, important, and they're helping us better manage symptoms. But we have a very robust pipeline of interventions that are trying to go after underlying disease pathology, like alpha-synuclein. Um, it's not the only one. We are going after other targets like BLRT2, GBA. Um, but almost every Parkinson's patient has misfolded alpha-synuclein in their brain at autopsy. Not all, but almost all. And so that means 
there's something going on with alpha-synuclein and having a tool that objectively measures it is really today that can really speed the results from these trials that are it that are teed up or underway right now it's not a futuristic thing they're moving right into these trials and that will make the biggest difference for people who've had parkinson's um, already and are looking for better treatments the care will be driven by the the um the uh proof of efficacy and relevance of new treatments and this tool has now been a real game changer for what's possible in the short term. How big of a risk was launching PPMI 13 years ago? It was a big shift actually, a pretty bold move in the early 2000s to realize that we'd had decades of um, of, uh, ideas um, that we would then test in, in model systems of Parkinson's that would later fail when they got closer to possibly going into humans because the model systems just weren't predictive of the human experience. And so the big bet, and it, it, was, it, was, it was actually shockingly big in retrospect, was to what could we do to actually study this disease and understand it by, by work, do it, seeing it in the best system and model of, the park, of, of Parkinson's, which is in the human condition. And we've always been investing aggressively on two parallel paths. And one was therapeutic programs and interventions themselves. And so, you know, we have been a, a significant, very significant funder of global ideas at whatever stage that, that held merit and try to take them from whatever stage they're in now to the next viable stage and just continue to put data around these therapeutic programs to demonstrate that they might over time kind of show us that they can you know, be one of those very few aha moments that actually turns into human health. So we've been constantly aggressively um, pressing ahead in the actual therapeutic program ideas. But in parallel, we knew from our earliest days that um, getting biomarkers would actually help all programs succeed um, more effectively. In fact, biomarkers in general, it's a common challenge and there are different kinds of biomarkers, but they can be used for diagnosis. They can be used to measure, to maybe quantify progression of disease. They also can be a tool for drug development in the sense that you can demonstrate that you've engaged the right target when you're testing something in, in people. The real power is that validated biomarkers can help us do smarter, faster, and cheaper drug trials. And so that parallel investment tools that can speed drug development and biomarkers being among the, the, the most, the highest potential alongside the therapeutic programs has always been um, a key uh, priority. And, and really our, our biomarker program is very significant. It's vast. It goes well beyond um, PPMI, but PPMI is the cornerstone and has been the gold standard for really trying to understand and measure Parkinson's disease. And when you think about it, um, this finding, which was validated in the PPMI samples, did just what we expected. Debbie, while everyone involved in this biomarker breakthrough deserves credit, there is one group that I understand you'd like to single out. I just want to really put a plug in and, and a shout out of gratitude to people who participate in clinical trials. And as people know, there are two kinds of trials. There are interventional studies where we are trying to test and learn about specific um, therapeutics. 
But there are many studies where we are just trying to learn about the disease itself. And the only way we were able to gain these observations, have these samples on hand, were that people raised their hand and said, yeah, I want, I'll participate in research. I will be part of the solution I'm looking for. And so a shout out to patients and families and, and non-patients who also participate in this, all the clinical sites. We have 55 clinical sites just in PPMI around the world. And all the, all the scientists, statisticians, everybody who works on this, it is a massive undertaking, but it starts with the patient saying, yeah, I want to be part of it. And there's going to be a lot more that places where people can participate in research. So don't want to underestimate the value of that contribution. If you're interested in learning more about how to participate in PPMI, all the details are available at michaeljfox.org. And Debbie, can you give us an idea of what to expect when we sign up for PPMI? Anybody can sign up to participate in screening surveys. And in those surveys, you can have Parkinson's, you can have, um, you might have a family member who has Parkinson's. So you, you're wondering um, how you can participate. Well, you can participate by sharing longitudinal data in the survey system. And if your questions start to um, suggest you might uh, be someone for whom doing a little bit more work, like let's say someone has a blood relative with Parkinson's, they're in their late fifties, and they're participating in screening, they'll be asked questions and maybe um, they'll hear from the study saying, hey, we'd love you to take this smell test. Or maybe they'll invite you in to do a brain scan. And, you know, or maybe they're interested in the fact that you have, um, you act out your dreams at night or that you have constipation. And there, we're really looking to both track people with Parkinson's and bring them into this study this active study into the clinical part of the study, if, if they qualify, but also people at risk and, um, and really understand and have different, you know, we're kind of looking at a continuum of risk. It's not absolute and try to understand, you know, people carry these symptoms for life and never get Parkinson's. And so where does this start? What can we be measuring over time? And then when we find people who may be at high risk, do they can do they really have the presence of the misfolded synuclein? And then can we bring them into studies? We'll be launching a study next year that will be the first time we have people with no symptoms of Parkinson's who are invited into interventional studies. So we're on our path to prevention. It's really exciting. That's really exciting. That's great. Well, thanks, Debbie. And uh, thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. You're welcome, Larry. If you check out the show notes, there will be links for the Michael J. Fox Foundation, for PPMI, for the published article about the biomarker, and more. When Life Gives You Parkinson's is a Curious Cast production. Story producer is Dila Velazquez, sound designed by Greg Schott. The presenting partner is Parkinson Canada, where people with Parkinson's are at the center of everything they do. Parkinson Canada funds critical research, provides information and support, increases awareness, and advocates for improved healthcare outcomes for people with Parkinson's across Canada. Learn more at parkinson.ca. Thanks also to our promotional partners, the World Parkinson Congress 2023, July 4th through 7th in Barcelona, Spain. Go to wpc2023.org. Registration is underway. PD Avengers, a global alliance of people with Parkinson's, their partners and friends, united to the cause of ending Parkinson's disease. We need you. Join us now at pdavengers.com. 
Spotlight, YOPD, one of the only organizations in the world with the singular focus of raising awareness of young-onset Parkinson's disease, SpotlightYOPD.org. We'd really appreciate it if you'd share this podcast with somebody. Personal recommendations are the most effective way to grow our audience and to raise awareness of Parkinson's disease. Keep positive. Keep exercising. Keep listening. We'll talk to you next time.